So, two weeks ago, when I preached last, and I was on the topic of love, and after the sermon, I came, went home, and my, one of my children said to me, uh, Dad, your definition of love didn't make sense. Always makes you feel really good, you know. And, but it was a good conversation. And what I, if you weren't here, or if you don't remember, essentially what I said was that, that love cannot be defined simply by strong feelings. Because you can have strong feelings for something and not have commitment to care for someone. You can also have a strong commitment and not have desire. So I said to my child that it's kind of like wings on an airplane. If you're missing one of the wings, the airplane is not going to fly. You've got to have both of the wings of the plane. You need to have commitment and desire go together. That's what love would be. Now, the same is true for the word that we're looking at today. In this fourth week of Advent, we've looked at hope, love, joy, and now we get to see God's teaching on peace and how Jesus really is the fullness of peace. And like I've done in previous sermons, I'm going to start with asking, what do you think peace means? When you think about it, now there's a little cheat up there, but when you think about the word peace, what, what do you think of when you think of peace? I think many people will define peace maybe in terms of internal serenity. That's, that's peace. I'll test your view of peace by going to a Bible verse, um, kind of commonly used if you grew up in church circles. So this one, do, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understandings, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When you hear peace, what do you think of? Growing up, for me, I, I kind of had this interpretation. I think it was taught to me, but maybe I just assumed it. But if you were struggling with something, maybe that, that you weren't sure what God wanted you to do, and you had some anxiety over it, well, then you pray about it, and then when you feel a peace about it, then that means God has given his thumbs up on it. Have you ever, have you ever, maybe you have said this or you've talked to somebody before where they just say, I just don't have a peace about it. Anybody? Okay. Or, or maybe you look at that passage and you say, if I have anxiety, then I pray. And then all of a sudden internal serenity comes in. And that means that God is all affirming of things right here. Well, let's just test that definition real quick. Moses. He's out as a shepherd, and then God speaks through the burning bush and says, I want you to go back to Egypt. And Moses says, God, I'm just not feeling a peace about it. You know, I mean, I was in Egypt. There were some problems there. Do you think, I mean, Moses tried to resist, right? And he tried to resist God. He didn't feel a peace about it, did he? No, not at all. Was he supposed to go to Egypt? Yeah. Let's think of another example. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
We don't hear Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, Oh, Father, I do not feel a peace about going to the cross, so I'm just not going to go. What does he say? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You look at the example of Moses, you look at the example of Jesus, look at your own life. What does peace mean? Has has God ever called you to do something that might stir up difficulty or pain in your life? Yeah? Any of you have children? Right? Or if you just walk outside of your house. Or if 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 you've talked to someone you love and you are maybe lovingly confronting them in a sin, you don't feel a peace about that. If, it's, if peace is just internal serenity. I don't think that that can be the only part of the definition of peace. There has to be more. We need a more sturdy foundation because the definition of peace needs to be able to handle real life. So I'm going to give you a definition to the most common word for peace in the Old Testament. I'm the word shalom. That's a word that's used even to this day amongst Jews as they use it as a greeting. And shalom means wholeness, completeness, soundness, welfare, peace. To add to this, one Bible dictionary says this, in one form or another, the notion of wholeness, health, and completeness inform all the variants of this word. Peace is not then simply a negative, the absence of war. Peace is a positive notion. So so when it's saying in one form or another, these descriptors are all a part of the meaning of the word, what what it means is this. I'm sure you've, well, maybe I shouldn't be so sure. I was going to say if you've looked in a dictionary. Okay. Um, uh, If you've looked up a definition of word online. Okay. If and you look up a, di- a dictionary definition of a word, you'll have like definition one, definition two, definition three, right? And what that means is like you can use that word to mean different things depending on the context, right? And there's a primary meaning of the word, a secondary meaning. What this Bible dictionary is saying is that in, in, in all ways, like shalom includes all of these notions all the time. You can't just define shalom by one of these things. So it's soundness, it's wholeness, it's peace, it's welfare, it's completeness, it's health. It's basically the the non-fracturing of everything. It's the wholeness of every single thing. Not every single thing internally and externally. So this is where it goes back to what I said earlier about love and the two two wings of a plane. You have to have both. You have to have the inside and the outside. And peace covers all of it. It's this, this broader perspective of having the blessings of God in every way, shape, and form. Now, one thing to add with regards to peace and shalom, is that it's not only individualistic, it's also communal. Meaning it's not just that you're not fractured, 
but it also means that there's no fracturing between you and others. There's no fracturing between communities. There's no fracturing between countries and governments. And ultimately, all of that is because there's no fracture between humanity and God. There is wholeness and well-being in all arenas of life. That sounds like a dream, doesn't it? Like when I read Longfellow's poem, there is no peace on earth. There is no shalom on this earth right now. But as I strive this word for peace, I want to then move into giving you the main idea of the sermon today. We get this understanding that God's peace is the atmosphere God designs for his people to live in. And the incarnate Jesus is the one who brings God's peace. What I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to take that first sentence and we're going to work through the Old Testament to see how this is God's design. That God's peace is the atmosphere that he designs for his people to live in. And then we will see how Jesus coming 2,000 years ago actually shows uh, or brings God's peace to this earth. So we start with the Old Testament to see God's design. God designed for people to live holy. Uh, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Mind, soul, body, heart. But as we've even seen in previous Advent sermons, Adam and Eve's rebellion led to a fracturing of everything. Shalom was lost. There is no welfare. There is no soundness. There's no completeness. As we journey from that incident, we, we cannot forget the promise God made to Adam and Eve. There's going to be a serpent crusher that's going to come, and this serpent crusher is going to bring back wholeness. As we move in Genesis, we get to this scenario where I think people are trying to create peace on earth. There's this story that's, that's uh, maybe you know, you've heard of the Tower of Babel. And in that story of the Tower of Babel, we're told that all the people have, what's, what's the benefit that they have? They have what? One language, okay? So they have this unified language, and their goal, what they're trying to do is they are trying to build a tower up into heaven. So in this unified language, they're trying to get, get to heaven. They're, they're, trying to, they're trying to get this this city to be, this is the city, we'll all be unified, there'll finally be peace because we've, we've risen up to God, right? The problem is that you can't work your way to God, right? The, the problem is, is that they have their own sin in their own hearts and that that needs to be addressed. They can't depend on themselves. Humanity is called to depend on the Lord for forgiveness, not just to trust our own willpower, but those individuals trust their willpower, their strength. They try to build up into heaven to prove that they can have this new community, but then God changes the language, separates the people, and so there is more fracturing, or you could say less shalom, health, and completeness, because they would not acknowledge God's forgiveness and grace. As we continue in Genesis, we arrive at another story that I think gives us anticipation for a better society with peace. 
We get to the story of Abram, and we hear of this scenario where Abram saves his nephew, Lot, along with other people. And Abram comes into contact with this mysterious king and priest. Do you remember his name? You can go, go ahead if you're all saying it separately, but just say it out loud here. Go ahead. What is it? Melchizedek. So Melchizedek's a very intriguing person. And Abram comes in contact with Melchizedek. Psalm 110 prophesies of the serpent crusher and connects the serpent crusher, or the seed of the woman, with Melchizedek and says that uh, of this seed of the woman, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's very important that we understand Melchizedek. He's king and priest of a city named Salem. As priest, he offers sacrifices to the Lord and leads people to worship God. As king, he rules people, and he rules over the city of Salem. The word Salem is actually linguistically connected to the word shalom, so Salem is actually translated as peace. So Melchizedek is actually the king of peace. He's a king of this city, and then Abram offers sacrifices to Melchizedek, which gives this idea that, wait, the people of Abram were made for a city of peace. We're made to live under a king of peace. Now, I think that that is actually a clear teaching that we, in contrast to living for Babylon in, or, or living for Babel, in contrast to living for Sodom and Gomorrah, that we, God has made a people to live in peace and a city for peace. I know this is the trajectory in the scriptures because, because what ends up becoming the capital city of Israel? What's the name of it? Jerusalem which Jerusalem just means the city of Salem. This is Melchizedek's city. Jerusalem is the city of Salem. It is the city of peace. And so God designs for his people to live in a city of peace. But you know, it's actually, it's easy to call something by a certain name isn't it? It's, it's another thing for it actually to be that. I mean, think about the city of Jerusalem right now. Is it a city of peace right now? Absolutely not. It's not been a city of peace. All the tension and the turmoil that exists there. But we move on in the scriptures. And we see not only does, has God designed for his people to live in a city of peace, but God designs for the residents of that city to be people of peace. So after God rescues the nation of Israel or the Israelites out of Egypt, God gives laws to the, to the Israelites. And in Exodus 21 and 22, God uses the word shalom 14 times in his commands. Now, it's, it's translated with different terms like make it good, surely pay, make full restitution, restore. But it's all the word shalom. The idea is that God designs for his people to live with wholeness in body, mind, spirit, and resources towards one another so that there would be this, this people that populate this city and this land, and there would be complete wholeness in this place. 
God wants to populate his city of peace with people of peace. Yet, we find Israelites rebelling against God. They fail to understand. They fail to understand that they will only find peace when they are at peace with God. But God's going to remind them over and over and over and over again of his design, that they need peace with him. He, he does this in various ways, but one of the ways is through the high priestly blessing. When God commands Aaron to bless the people, this is what he tells him to say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now each line here has the word and in the statements. So if we go back, the Lord bless you and keep you. They're defining each other here. To be blessed by God is to be kept by God. And then you see, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. When God shines his face on you, that's grace. Or the Lord lift up his countenance. When he, when he looks at you in grace, that's peace. This is what we need. We need God. And God is reminding the Israelites that they need him. They need him to engage them and, and take away their sins and forgive them of their sins. Because he is designed for a city of peace to be, to have residents who are people of peace. Now, as we get to this point, and, I, and as I even think about peace, I tend to think this word shalom and what it means, it just sounds too good to be true. I am, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. I hate hearing news about another murder, another mass murder, or how our government is making laws that affirm human sinfulness. I hate hearing of the number of children that are being taken out of their homes because their parents are abusing them or talking to parents who are mourning because their children are in rebellion. I yearn, I yearn more and more, increasingly, I yearn for shalom. When is that perfect place? When, when is it going to happen? I want to live in the city of peace and not fear anything wrong. I want to live in the city of peace and know that there's only going to be wholeness and completion, uh, 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 completeness and perfection to the uttermost. Do you long for that? Even in this Christmas season where we're supposed to have, we're supposed to have all of the internal good fuzzy feelings there's still pain and sorrow, isn't there? 
Has God given up on this plan of shalom? No, let's keep looking at scriptures. Now, it seems as though, for the most part, the people of Israel did not genuinely trust the Lord for his peace. Eventually, God did institute kings in Israel. Then Jerusalem becomes the capital. David's reign sees people, it seems like, more people worshiping the Lord. And then under Solomon, we experience, or the people experience, a greater degree of peace. There's a powerful economy. There's minimal to no war. And the temple of God is built, and God shows his blessing on the temple by, by uh, revealing himself, making his, his glory visible through smoke. So you can kind of wonder when you get to Solomon, is he the seed of the woman? Is he, is he the priest after the order of Melchizedek? But he's not, clearly not. He got peace in uh, his own ways by marrying many, many, many women to create alliances with other countries, and his heart strayed from faithfulness to the Lord. And not long after Solomon, then the kingdom of Israel is divided, and then we have two kingdoms, Israel, Judah, and their own kings. Now, at this point in time, I mean, seriously, reading in the Old Testament, if you've made it that far, I kind of feel like saying, God, you did your best. Like, it's totally okay if you want to be done. But God doesn't just try things and give up, right? Whatever God says he's going to do, he's going to accomplish. So God has never given up on his mission. The whole time throughout the Old Testament scriptures, he continues to go on. He has a mission to give peace and to bring peace and to have a city of peace with residents who will be people of peace. But many of the people of Israel and Judah seem to have given up on that idea, and they seem to have given up on God. By the time we get to the prophet Jeremiah, I want you to hear how Jeremiah describes the people in his day. Everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace. And there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. What is, what's God saying through Jeremiah? These people in that day, they're living, trusting themselves people of Babylon, like the people, all the people in, in the generations before. They're trusting themselves. And then the prophets and the priests are answering these individuals as they're depending on themselves and doing their own thing and thinking, you know, God's totally fine with however I live. It doesn't matter. And the prophets and priests, they're responding and they're just saying, peace, peace. What does that mean? It's all good. Totally fine. God's not angry. This isn't a problem. It's shalom. And there is no peace. To me, it actually sounds quite a bit like our society in which we live, doesn't it? We're not different. I think the major, in some ways, the major prophets and priests in our day come from Hollywood and the music industry. And especially in this time, in Christmas season, how many of you have watched a Christmas movie? 
in this season, okay? And, if, and, and, and the newer ones that you watch, man, the consistent message, like the consistent message is just look within. The answer's right in here. Just, just, just believe. Mm. What is that? That is peace, peace, where there is no peace. We cannot solve our sinfulness. Only God can. It is not all well. Peace is not found inside. It's found out of us, from God. Only he can give peace. And so in Jeremiah's day, that's where the people were. And then Isaiah as well is speaking to a people who just won't listen. They are resolute in depending on themselves and trusting themselves. And yet God doesn't give up. Praise God he doesn't give up. We get to Isaiah chapter 9 and we read this prophecy. By the way, this prophecy is, is in the midst of Isaiah confronting evil, evil people and, and, a, and a king who's faithless. He won't even trust God. But you know what? Even his faithlessness is not going to keep God from being faithful. Amen? And so here's a sign. God's going to give it. For to us, a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the lord of hosts will do this a child will be born, and he will be the prince of peace, the government. He will rule over all in eternal peace. And how do we know this is going to happen? Because God is zealous for this. Just, just let that sink in. God is zealous to have a people of peace live under a reign of peace for all eternity. That should astound us. We, we people who have been rebels against God, God wants to rescue and give us peace. And he doesn't just want to, he's zealous for it. God's peace is the atmosphere God designs for his people to live in. Now we can move into that second statement of the main idea. The incarnate Jesus is the one who brings God's peace. Incarnate. What does the word incarnate mean? That just means in the flesh. That, that the second member of the Godhead, God the Son, took on flesh to bring peace. Why? Why did he have to take on human flesh? I mean, this is, 
This is astounding as well. God did not stay up in heaven. God did not just create other things to solve problems. God himself engages with humanity. This is, this is tremendous love that God would engage with humanity and come into this earth. Why? Because Adam and Eve failed, and Adam failed as the ruler and representative for humanity. We need a new ruler and a representative who does not bring death, but one who's going to destroy death and sin. We need a new ruler who does not break things apart, but one who is actually going to bring everything together and bring wholeness and peace. Isaiah prophesies this new representative is going to come as a child into this world. And so you have Isaiah's prophecy around 1,000 B.C., right? 1,000 years before Jesus arrives. And then we get to Luke 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The baby came. The Savior entered, and peace has come. Do you even see this? God's glory, God's glory and people's peace go together. You see that? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. Because God is magnified, now people with whom he is pleased have peace. The son has come. This child has been born into this world. And how, how has peace come because Jesus entered? It's because according to the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus is not only king, but he is also priest. And Jesus doesn't only accept sacrifices from people, but Jesus, as the next priest, Jesus sacrifices himself. And the reason why Jesus sacrifices himself is because he came to take the punishment, the brokenness that sinners deserved, that Adam and Eve brought into this world. He took the brokenness and sinfulness of humanity to the fullest degree and experienced the judgment that you and I deserved. And through that sacrifice, God directed all of his just wrath onto Christ so that anyone who would turn from their sinfulness and turn to Jesus would find forgiveness. But let me, let me specify forgiveness. You would find wholeness. You would find completion. You would find peace with God. Why? Because Jesus was broken so that we could be healed. 
so that we could be complete in him and have peace. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you turned to Jesus? If, if you have, then you are, you are at peace with God. Whether, whether you feel that or not. Did you hear that? I, I, want, I want to get it. Because sometimes you ever doubt that you're at peace with God? Anybody ever? Just raise your hand. Just want to see. Okay. All right. All right. Jesus guarantees, believer, that you are at peace with God always. Unbroken peace with God. That's amazing grace. You have peace with him because Jesus took the brokenness and rose from the dead and conquered it so that you could have peace. That's why we, then we can look and say, wait a second, it says, you know, there's different ways that different translations go. I think this is a more accurate translation, with whom he is pleased. Well, who are the people he is pleased with? The Bible tells us, apart from faith, it is impossible to, what, please God. Faith is the only action that's really a non-action. It's the action where we say, I can't, only you can. The people that God is pleased with are those people who say, God, I need you to rescue me. And I, not only to rescue me, I, I need you for life, everything. Peace, then. Peace to you. And that, by the way, is exactly what Jesus says to his followers. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to leave and that he's going to be preparing a place for them. And in the midst of that conversation, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. As Jesus is saying he's going to create a place of peace, he says, but I give you peace. But don't let your hearts be troubled. Why? Why, why would our hearts be troubled? Because we're still in a world that's not experiencing shalom. But we still have peace. What kind of peace do we have? Peace with God, the creator and sustainer the self-sufficient one is at peace with us. There's no war anymore. That peace should shape how we think, how we feel, how we act, and how we behave in this world, shouldn't it? Don't you think? Christian, listen. You are at peace with God right now. Can you imagine just this week as you contemplate peace, as you enter into and come towards Christmas Day next Sunday, that you wake up every morning and say, I'm at peace with God because of Jesus. Jesus made me at peace with God. 
God, help me to know how that should shape everything today. Whether you go through pain or pleasures in this life, we have peace. And we also remind ourselves that we're on our way to eternal peace. The first advent of Jesus, we should never stop at the first advent of Jesus, if I can word it that way. Jesus came, and he's coming again. The reality of God fulfilling his promises 2,000 years ago should bolster our confidence in saying he's going to fulfill his promises and coming again. Amen? We have peace with God, but we are not experiencing the fullness of shalom, are we? No, we are not. So just indulge me for a moment as I read, and you can see on the screen behind me, of that day when peace comes. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, the new city of peace, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her bridegroom. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Listen, this is not us trying to build our way up to heaven like Babel. This is God coming down to us. I will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All the brokenness is gone. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no, neither shall there be mourning, no fracturing, no crying, no pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. The new Jerusalem is the city of peace that we who are at peace with God will live in. No mourning, no death, no pain, no sorrow, only peace forever. And why has this happened? Because God is zealous for it. And this is his glory. So as we come into this final week before Christmas and you're trying to wrap presents or buy your final presents or you're feeling stressed because of all of that or you're feeling stressed because you have to make certain things that some people want and you don't feel like you have enough time to do that or maybe on a deeper level because there's brokenness within your family and you're feeling stressed and anxious and sad, or there's sickness, or whatever it may be, remember the Prince of Peace has come and is coming again. As we come to Christmas Day and you think about the sorrows of this past year or contemplate what could come, remember the Prince of Peace. God has done all to reconcile you to him. As we listen to the sad news in the days and weeks to come, let Christians remind, let Christmas remind us of the Prince of Peace who will put an end to all the brokenness and bring wholeness. God's peace is the atmosphere God designs for his people to live in. The incarnate Jesus is the one who brought God's peace and is bringing it in full measure one day. Amen.
Amen. Let me pray for us here. Oh, Father, you are worthy and good. You, Lord, I pray, I pray that that we would see and embrace your goodness, that we would trust you, even in the midst of this fallen world, but that we would see that by you sending Jesus into this world, you are zealous to bring your peace. You would not bring Jesus 2,000 years ago to, to, to give up. And Lord, I pray for broken hearts that are here people who are experiencing in various ways the shattered realities of the fall. They need, they need to see and know the Prince of Peace. Lord, remind your children of your goodness. So that, Father, whatever may be the case next Sunday on Christmas Day, that we, too, can sing with the angels glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. To you be the glory, God. I will ask um, if uh, the Adkins, if you could go out in the gathering center. People will be out there in a moment to shake your hands and welcome you uh, into the church family. But if you would, everyone, stand and hear these words of blessing. That, it, that if you are Christ's, these words are true every moment of every day. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.